So this is a grading scale, right? And basically what the grading scale does is it gives you, it gives you an indication of your place in relationship to 100%, right? So all the grading scale is, is it tells you that if this is the perfect score, right? This is where you stand in relationship to a perfect score. Yep. All right. Let me show you a, a grading curve. Okay. So this is a bell curve, right? So how many of you that were teachers or former teachers ever graded on a curve? How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? A couple of you. So back in the day, right, so, you know, long, long, long time ago when I was in school, right, there were times, especially in high school, so teachers would throw out a test, and basically what they would find is that generally what the bell curve would suggest is that there was a mean or an average of where the majority of the scores were at, right? And then basically from that, they would look at these scores and go, okay, there's only a handful down here on the on the A side and a handful down there on the fail side, and then they would use this this grading curve to determine what to do to try to say, hey, either my test was too hard, right? Or some way to encourage the students. So what would happen, there's lots of ways to do it, but the one that I was most familiar with is what would happen is the teacher would take the top score in the class. Let's say that, that you took a test, 100% is perfect, that the next, that the highest in the class was 88, okay? So what the teacher would do, who graded on the curve, is he would take the 88 and he would make it 100, right? He would increase that score by 12 and then everybody else's score would be increased to 12, right? Anybody ever go through that when they were in school? A couple of you, right? And so what that would essentially do is it would give one, one person the perfect score and then you... You and I, right, would be judged according to that perfect score, but only after our score was increased, right, by the number of points it took for Billy, who had the highest test score, to get 100. A lot of kids love that, right? The kids in my class hated it. And the reason that the kids in my class hated it is because I was the guy that always ruined the curve, Right? And what I mean is, I was almost always the guy that would get close to, I was one of three or four people in my class that we always would get the highest score. The problem was, our score would be 96, 97, 98, 99, and so they would increase our score to perfect, which would mean that people would only get an increase in their score of one, two, or three points, right? So, if you were a kid in school who would get the highest score and it was close to perfect, you were the student that at recess they wanted to beat up, right? Because you didn't elevate their grade enough. So say they got a 67. Listen, if, if the teacher's got to move scores 12 points to get a perfect, then my score is going to go from 67 to 79 and I'm going to be happy, right? All of a sudden I can go from failing, right? I can go from failing to getting a C plus, boom, like that. Right? And people loved it. But if you're at a six, if you're at a 60, say 65 and Cord got a 98 and he only got bumped two points and you got bumped two points, going from 65 to 67 really didn't help you. You get the concept? Now, this idea of grading on the curve, right, has found its way forever into the church. 
This was the system by which Pharisees judged other people. Right? This is the system by many, by which many of you were judged when you first attempted to go to church. Because somebody in church thought they were the hundred. And based upon their life, they would look at your life and they would say, Woo, that's an F. Right? That's a 70. Right? And too often, that's what got preached from the pulpit. Right? What would get preached from the pulpit is your need to increase your score because you're lagging behind. It's why we put all the rules in place. It's why we put all these restrictions in place. Because if you're a Christian, these are things that, these are questions on the test that you can't fail. Right? You can't be smoking. You can't be drinking. You can't be sleeping around when you're not married. You can't be dancing. You can't play cards. God knows you can't wear a dress to church. And if you're a guy or a girl, you can't have a tattoo. These are just questions on the righteousness test that if you fail, you're lagging behind. And the thing about the church is they never ever had to bump the score up because somebody always thought they were a hundred already. Anybody familiar with that kind of judgment in church? Right? Of course you are. Some of you are way too familiar with it. And here's the thing. In 2023, it still happens. Because it's the number one lie of the devil ever within scripture and within the church. The number one lie that Satan tells every person is, your score is up to you. Listen, you do it as parents. As parents, we, we, we talk to our kids as if their righteousness determines their grade. And here's the thing about a grade. I don't know who you were in school, right? But I went to school with kids, my, my dearest friend in the world, right? Who doesn't live here. My, my dearest guy, guy friend in the world who doesn't live here, right? Struggled in school. All right, I didn't go to school with him. I was a senior when he was an eighth grader. So by the time he got into high school, I wasn't there. But he was the kid that sat in the back of the room and struggled mightily to take tests. Anybody else want to be the person that admits they didn't do testing well? Right? A couple of you. Right? And what happened was, because he failed his test, listen to how this works. Because he struggled with his test, he got labeled as a person who was what? Dumb. Right? And every other slang word you could come up with, that's the identification marker that this kid had. And I don't know if you've ever been on the end of a bunch of name calling from your peers in school because you were the dummy who couldn't pass the test, but that kind of stuff sticks with you. It sticks with you. And then what happened was he got to believing what other people said about him. Because you know the power of persuasion or the power of influence or the power of suggestion when people say things about you. If people say negative about you long enough, you tend to want to what? You tend to want to believe it, right? And when you're young and impressionable, that kind of stuff sticks with you. So my buddy, by the time I got to be friends with him when he was a grown man, was living in a world where he was convinced he was the dunce because he'd been labeled that forever. And then once you're convinced you're a dunce, you still need a better identity and he became the troublemaker. He became the guy that went to school, sat in the back of the class and caused trouble. He was the guy that smoked smoked out on the parking lot. He was the guy that at 17 went and got tattoos. He's the guy that constantly got in trouble because it's a better moniker than being a dunce. Now, use that same mentality you put it in church. There are people who go to church and have forever, right, who struggle with righteousness issues that you don't have. 
There are people who, because of the, the, the nature of the disease and the way that it lived its life in the people's homes, there are people who have a proclivity to drink simply because of a genetic disposition or because of a household environment. They, they have a much greater proclivity to drink alcohol than some of you do. I was raised in that environment, so guess what? My proclivity for alcohol is almost non-existent, right? There are days after working, I want to go home and drink a lot, okay? But my proclivity is so small that it's not an issue for me. There are people that that is a major struggle in their life. Major. Now, put that person in church. Put that person in a relationship with Jesus. And put that person with the power of the Holy Spirit in them and they still struggle with the scar and the proclivity that their brain waves have developed over the years. And this is their response to stress. This is their response to fear. I drink so I don't have to deal with it. And guess what? When that Christian with that proclivity does that behavior, the church begins to call that person what? Unrighteous. A dunce. And guess what that person begins to believe about themselves? That they are what? Unrighteous and a dunce. So guess what that person does? They try to create a new, a new identity. And you do that by one of two ways in the church. You leave the church because you know there's no chance for you to change your identity in church because that's how they're ever forever going to see you. Or you decide to pretend to be somebody else at church so everybody thinks you got your problems under wraps. And then you become a poser. You become the hypocrite, the self-declared, self-righteous leader of the pack, because all of a sudden you're reformed. Listen, I can tell you something. That kind of church and that kind of message is not appealing to people. Amen? None of you want that. None of us want that. And yet, I'm convinced, after 40 plus years of walking with the Lord and 30 some years of preaching, that number one lie the devil tells anybody is you are responsible for your score before God. And you may think that that doesn't impact you, but my guess is it impacts all of you more than you've ever given yourself credit for, which is why it's important to know what scripture says about your righteousness. We've talked now for two weeks about the belt of truth and about putting on the full armor. And I hope what you've learned is that when Greek verbs are written, written in an aorist tense, it matters. Amen, church? So when Paul says, put on the full armor of God, to all of us who believe in Jesus, and if you believe in Jesus online and in here, say amen. That when you put on the full armor of God, you only have to do it how many times? Once. That means it always belongs to who? It belongs to you. And no matter what a church says, no matter what a spouse says, no matter what a friend says, and no matter what your preacher says, that once you become a Christian and arm yourself with the righteousness of Jesus that's expressed in the armor, you're covered once and it lasts for how long? Forever. Now what you got to learn to do is what do you do with that knowledge? What do you do with that knowledge that you know now? Because you ain't got to get up every day and you ain't got to go to fight. You ain't got to dress for battle. You ain't got to have those days. I saw, I think I said this last week, but there was a quote that said, motivation lasts for a season, that discipline lasts forever. Right? The problem with learning that Christianity is about you fighting for your own score because you've got to make sure that you don't do anything wrong today. The problem is there's days you're not motivated to get a good score. There are days you would rather just do something stupid. Amen? That seems like a weird thing to say amen to, right? 
But if we're honest, that's the way it is. Most of us on the days we're motivated to be great before God, we love the idea that my score is dependent upon my effort. But how, may, how about the days that you have no motivation to succeed righteously? How about the moments that you find no motivation to keep your mouth shut without stringing a word, a bunch of curse words together and offending somebody? Right? What about the moment where you have zero, zero resistance to your proclivity to drink or to get high or to watch porn or to gamble? What about the days and the weeks and the months where there's no motivation and now you're convinced that your score has determined your label and now you've got to decide what to do with your label. I've either got to flee the church because I can't live under this label or I've got to come to church and start dressing better and play the part better. Do you think that appeals to people, church? No. And the problem with it not appealing is it's just not true. The armor of God is yours. You get it through Jesus and you put it on once. Amen? So your, your belt of truth stays hooked. It is your guiding light. I am the way, the truth. It is the thing that you've got you've to understand. But here's the thing about truth. When you give it without grace, it's a hammer. Somebody say amen. Listen, you can have the belt of truth and you can say, i got to stand for truth. That's fine. Just don't put the box of truth on somebody else and stand on them for the purposes of, I'm fighting for truth. That's not the purpose of truth. The purpose of truth was to be greased by grace so the truth could be received. It's the way it works. Now we're talking about the breastplate of righteousness. And we talked about this last week. So skip that Ephesians passage, right? And go to the Matthew 5, 6 passage, right? So let's just talk about righteousness real quick, right? Matthew chapter 5, it's in point 2. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, Jesus is preaching uh, to the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's giving them some directions, right? You got it? There you go. We're going to read three passages real quickly about righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. So real quick, righteousness in the Greek, two words. It means to, to be declared right. Right? It was, it was used in scripture primarily to describe a legal standing before the court and the judge. So right now, if you were drugged before a courtroom... Right? For stealing a thousand dollars from your employer, what you would want is for the judge to declare you what? Righteous. To have a right standing before the court. Here's what he says. If you hunger and thirst, meaning if that's your sole desire to stand right before God, you will be what? You're going to be satisfied. Right? You're going to be complete. And listen, until God gets people to the point that they want, they want this, they have this desire, they're never going to be satisfied in their walk with Jesus. Amen? The reason why some of you are struggling in your walk with Jesus is because you have an hungered and thirst for the righteousness of the right standing before God. You're hungering, hungering and thirsting for a relationship. You're hungering and thirsting for, for a promotion in your job. You're hungering and thirsting for, for something else. It's your desire. It's what you wake up to accomplish. I want to reach these goals in five years. I want to reach these goals in 10 years. And here's the thing. That chase never satisfied. Jesus said, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness to be right with God, you will be what? Filled. You want to know why the world is suffering from a lack of knowing their purpose and finding value is because they're hungering and thirsting for the wrong thing. 
How many of you have ever had a hankering for a certain kind of food, got home, didn't have it in your refrigerator, and instead of going and getting it, you just ate something, and when you were done, you were full, but boy, you were not happy with the choice. Anybody? Man, isn't that the worst? I mean, listen, the older we get, the fewer meals we're going to have, people. I think we should make a pact here to quit wasting them, okay? Listen, if there's something you want, don't eat something stupid just to fill the gap. Go to the store and fix it or call DoorDash, please, okay? It's just an extra five bucks. It won't kill you, right? But, but we all know, we all know the dissatisfaction that comes from filling our bellies with something that we didn't want. Yes, it, 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 it got me through the crisis, right? It got me through the hunger pains. But don't ask me if I'm satisfied because I'm not. As a matter of fact, I might even be angry that I chose to do something so stupid. Satisfaction only comes from pursuing that. How about Matthew chapter 5 verse 10? Listen to what Jesus says about righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of what? Listen, those of us that stand right before God are going to be what? Persecuted. That word means to be pressured. Right? You're going to feel the pinch. That's why Jesus said, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's going to come upon you. Right? If I suffered and was persecuted, you're going to as well. Why? Because when you stand right before God, you stand at, at a completely opposite angle of what the world cares about. And guess what? You're going to be pressured. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be stressed. And he says, when that happens to you, right, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You want to know? And listen, I'm not asking you to be pressured because your, your, your mouth won't say kind words on social media. Listen, if you come and tell me that you got into a fight on social media and you gave them the business for Jesus, I'm going to call you a moron. Because it doesn't do you any good to suffer when you don't behave right. If you simply suffer for being a jerk, you really don't get kudos from God. But if you suffer because of righteousness... Pursuing the right standing. Listen, if you're in here today and you're trying to live your life right for God, if you're online today and trying to live your right life right for God, there are going to be, there are going to be people in your circle that are going to be at odds with you. Amen. There may be people in your family that are at odds with you. Amen. It's just going to happen. And he says, don't worry about that. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Now listen to what he says in Matthew chapter five and verse 20. I tell you that unless your right standing, right, your right standing with God surpasses is greater than that of a Pharisee and the teacher of the law, he says, guess what? You're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Pharisees cared about doing everything right. If it was in the law, my job was to do it right. How in the world are normal people like you and me supposed to be more righteous than them? What Jesus explains is that the righteousness that makes you right before God and that makes you better than the Pharisees, it's a righteousness that comes from your heart. The Pharisees did righteous things so the person sitting in the fourth row would look at the Pharisee and go, oh my gosh, they are so godly. You know those people, right? That go to church, that want you to think they're amazing, that they're so Christian, right? Right? 
Jesus says people who act that way already get their reward. They're getting nothing else. So what he says is, listen to this church. You need to hunger and thirst for this right standing because it'll satisfy you. Right? You need to understand that if you pursue it, you're going to be persecuted because of it. And he says this about righteousness. It's got to come from your heart. Now, Jeremiah says your heart and my heart are deceitful above all things. Which means if your right standing before God is coming from your heart, a deceitful organ, is it going to look perfect all the time or is it sometimes going to look messy? Sometimes it's going to look messy. But when we see messy righteousness, we tend to want to get the grading scale out, don't we? Like here's the score sheet. That's a B minus. Right? Oh, you did that? That's a D plus. Oh, that? That's just an A minus. That's not a big deal. The problem is that's not the way it works with God. Right? So listen to, this, listen to these verses. Romans 3. 19 says this. Okay, so we're going to cover a lot of verses. The verses are in the Bible app, uh, or you can write them down. But listen, he says, we know that whatever the law says, and here's the law, right? The law is simply this. These are the things that God says you need to do to be perfect, right? So the law was put in place, right? And the goal of the law, right, is to get people to follow it. What percentage of the time? 100 right? 100. You can't get a hundred, right? You can't get a hundred on the test unless you already know the content and have a chance to study it. So we give you the law. It's an open book test. Those were the favorite, right? Hated them, hated them, right? But you put the test out, you give them the book and you say, okay, here's all the answers. All you got to do is follow every one of them and you'll be fine. The Bible says that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under it, right, to under it, so that how many mouths? Every mouth. Online in here. Why is the law there? So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to who? Because here's the thing. Nobody in here, Christian or not, nobody online, Christian or not, has ever followed every rule. Amen. And you can't find anybody that will say they have. You might find people that are arrogant enough to believe that they have. But you won't find people who think that they have. So what he says is, the reason the law exists isn't to make you perfect. It's to make you understand you're what? You're not perfect. Those people that you're talking to about becoming a Christian and they won't listen to you. The reason they're not listening to you isn't because what you're saying isn't right. It's because they haven't been silenced before God yet. They don't recognize they're not perfect. So what do you do for that person? You stop talking to that person like they're going to hear you. And you start praying for that person to recognize they're not 100%. Does that make sense to you, church? So maybe quit giving so many biblical speeches to your children and just start praying that they'll realize they're not perfect. But he says the purpose of the law is so you and I will be silent before God because he goes on and he says this, right? Rather, or, or he says, therefore, no one, everybody say no one, no one will be declared righteous. Nobody will be given stamp of right standing before God in God's sight by observing the 
rules. And aren't you grateful for that church? Is there anybody in here online who's disappointed that they can't stand before God on their own score? Is there anybody disappointed by that? Thank you, Jesus. He goes on to say, rather, through the law, we become conscious of what? Sin. You want to help your, your son? You want to help your daughter? You want to help your spouse, your friend, your neighbor, your coworker come to faith in Jesus? Stop preaching to them. And start praying for them. Hey, bring that verse back up. Start praying for them to become conscious of their what? And the Bible says in John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit comes to convict of what? Sin. So just pray. Pray for God to sick the Holy Spirit on them. And just pray it over and over and over. Now let me warn you. Let me warn you. When you start praying for God to sick his spirit on your friend or your child to become conscious of their sin, you need to let go of the wheel because it's going to get what? It's going to get rough and ugly because God will do whatever it takes to see that your son, your daughter, your husband, your wife becomes conscious of sin. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've prayed this. I pray this for lots of people. And there are times it is hard for me to continue because what begins to happen so that God can make them aware of their shortcomings is very, very difficult to not participate in. But if you want them to know, then you're going to have to ask for that. But the law, listen, all of you that like rules and regulations, raise your hand. All right. Those of you that like them so that you can know how to break them, raise your hand. All right. Right. There's two kinds of people in the world, right? There's, there's, there's always divisions of people, right? Rule followers who love structure and obedience and those that are so-so with the rules, right? And the reality is this, that if you're a person in here online that thinks the rules matter, great. They better matter just as much to you because Jesus just said, through the Apostle Paul, no one, everybody say no one, right? That means you, rule follower, you will not get the stamp of right standing with God because you follow more rules than I do. Make sense? So whether you're a rule follower or whether you're a rule breaker, Everybody will be on solid ground and even ground and fair ground before God. Somebody say amen. Now listen to what he goes on to say. Verse 21. He says this. But now. And everybody say, but now. Man, that is some of the best words in all of scripture. The way you had to be right before God was you had to be perfect. That's so hard and impossible. But now, he says, there's a different way for God to say, you're in right standing with me. There's a righteousness or a right standing from God apart from the rules, and it's been made known. Aren't you excited about that? How is God going to make you right without making you follow a rule? Look what he says. Here's the way to which the law and the prophets testify. Why do we preach the Old Testament? Because the entire thing is devoted to pushing you to this new way to be right before God. Do not say, like Andy Stanley says, that the Old Testament has no value. 
That's not true. Because the Old Testament points to this new way. Somebody say amen. What's the new way? Look what he says. This righteousness. That's the but now. From God. Perfect. Comes through. Everybody read it. Everybody online. Everybody here. Faith. To who? Listen. Everybody in this room that knows Jesus should say what? Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And when we stand up and sing a song and you don't want to sing, shame on you. You know why you should sing? Because of that right there. Do you realize that the way that you had to be right before God depended upon your score? And God does not grade on a curve. God looks at your score and goes, whoop, guilty. Cord, you got a 98. Too bad, so sad. You got a 67. Too bad, so sad. Everybody in here now has a way for God to go. You're right. You're right. You're right standing. You're right standing. You're right standing. You're right standing. And it's legal. It's legal, which means it's binding. He says, there's a way for God to give that to you. Listen to this. This fits to Boca really well. You can get this from God and you don't have to be perfect. Come on, somebody say thank you. Thank you. And it's to how many people? All who what? Believe. Listen, we sing songs about Jesus, man. You should open your mouth and scream as loud as you can. Because that man's made it possible for God to look at you and go, you're okay. No, I'm not. I got divorced. I committed adultery. I watch porn all the time. I get drunk. I do drugs. I've lied. I've stolen. I've cheated. Right? I've been envious and covetous. I'm greedy and prideful. It's okay. Through faith in Jesus, you're right. Why do you sing? That's why. Not because you have the best voice in the world, because you don't. You sing because that verse sets you free from your inadequacies and your own righteousness. That's why you raise your hand. That's why some people come to church and dance and you look at them like they're crazy. The reason we do it is because that thing changes everything. It changes it for you. It changes for your spouse. It changes it for your children. It changes it for your grandchildren. Because now you ain't got to preach rule, 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 rule to those people. You get to preach Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's a huge difference, church. Amen. And he says, there's no difference. Check this out. No difference for all. Everybody say all. Have sinned and failed the test. Jew, Greek, rich, poor, abused, neglected, those that weren't abused and neglected, men and women and boys and girls, black and white. It's all the same because everybody has failed the test. Amen? Amen. Now listen to what he says. How do we get this? We're justified, meaning that is a legal term, meaning the judge hits the gavel and says not guilty. He says, and you're justified. And, and, and Can I irritate you for a second? Because I'm going to irritate the camera people for getting up, right? This word justified is a verb in the Greek. Does anybody want to guess which tense it's in? It's in the aorist tense, meaning it happened when? Once in the past and it lasts how long? Stop. Stop. Stop acting as if your salvation is on hold. Stop acting as if your, your partner's salvation is on hold or your child's. He says you're justified. Aorist tense. Once. In the past. Lasts forever. Right? Justified. How? Freely. 
You ain't got to go on enough mission trips to get it and earn it. You're not going to give enough money. You're not going to sing enough songs. Cord, you're not going to preach enough sermons. You're not going to work at enough churches. You're not going to come to enough services. You get this because it comes how? Freely. Who can afford that? Everyone. Which is why we go everywhere. Right? He says we're justified freely by his what? Grace. He says we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption. That's a price that's paid. Redeem means to purchase, right? Or to buy back. You go to a slave auction, right? Your slave is there. It's been given away to pay a debt or whatever. You go to the auction and you buy that slave back. That's redemption. He says we got God's grace because God went to auction and bought us back. And according to Hebrews, who'd he pay off to do it? Satan, because he held the bill of sale. And he did that by Jesus. What happened? Next verse says this. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of what? Of covering. Covering. Wait a minute. I thought you said God didn't grade on a curve. I was wrong. God does grade on a curve. And it's a curve like you ain't ever experienced before. You may have been in a class where the highest score was a 72 and your scores went up 28 points. But for some of you, you still couldn't get past a C. What God does is he covers all the difference and everybody's score through Jesus goes to what? 100. And how many times does he have to take you there? And how long does it last? So the next time somebody questions your salvation, you call them a thank you. The next time the devil tries to convince you of your lack of salvation, you call him a And you know you can do it because you now know the And the truth will set you See what happens when you know scripture? It changes everything. You got covered because of that. Look what he says this. God presented him as atonement, right? Sacrifice of atonement through faith in his what? Blood. Do you know when we, do you know when we memorialize and remember and celebrate the blood of Jesus? Do you know what we call that in church? Communion. So some of you wonder, why don't we do this every week? We should do this every day. Because if the blood of Jesus is the thing that bought us the covering that moved my 62 to 100, moved my spouse's score of 80 to 100, moves my children's scores from 20 to 100, and it costs Jesus his life, and we're going to celebrate that every time we gather, it should be the greatest moment in the service for you. You shouldn't worry about whether there's music playing, whether somebody's singing a song, or somebody's dancing on the stage. You know what you should be focusing on? Remembering the blood of Jesus and saying what? Thank you. It don't have to take 20 minutes of beating yourself up and going, oh, it's a terrible week. I'm so worthless. I don't know if I should take it or not. That's crazy. Jesus didn't offer his blood as a sacrifice of atonement for you to question your worthiness. He gave it because you were unworthy. And you should celebrate that. Right? Because here's the thing, when you know theology, listen, when you know theology, when you know scripture, the stuff that we do actually does make a little more sense. 
Now, I'm not saying it makes everything we do make sense because we're sort of dumb people sometimes, right? But he said, through faith in his blood. Listen, why did God do it? God did this to demonstrate his what? Which, and the reason that he has to demonstrate his justice, bring that verse back up, right? The reason he has to demonstrate his justice is because what's been broken. Everybody say the law. So if God really wants to be just, he's got to punish lawbreakers. Because otherwise God's just like you and me. We just pick who we want to be kind to. Anybody want to trust that God? No. No, we don't want to trust that God. So God has to do it to prove his justice. Look what it says. Because of God's forbearance, that means his unbelievable patience that never gave up on you and me, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, just piled up and unpunished. Why? So that he could demonstrate his justice at the present time. He goes on to say this. He did that to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Romans, 20, Romans 3, 21 through 26, greatest explanation of the gospel and scripture in my mind. Because when you realize what's happened and you realize what God did for you through Jesus, a million things begin to make sense. And you become a lot more equipped at walking before God the right way than you ever have before. Second Corinthians sums it up this way, verse five, chapter five, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, right, he is a new creation. Somebody say amen. You see why you're a new creation? Because now you're not the 78. You're not labeled as the dunce who got a 32, right? Are you kidding me? Are we done already? Lord have mercy. Won't the rest of you come to my house and I'll finish this thing, right? He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. I mean, listen. Some of you have spent your entire life being labeled as a 34. You've been labeled as a person who got divorced. You've been labeled as a cheater, an adulterer, a liar, a person who does drugs, who drinks, who's an alcoholic. If you're in Jesus, you're a what? Everybody say new creation. Everybody say new creation. You're not, you listen, you're not a remade old one. You're a new creation. This isn't new, new, new in the sense of time. This is new in the sense of quality. You're brand stinking new. God didn't go to the Salvation Army and pick up a shirt and say, this is new. Nope. He went into the factory and made one that doesn't even look like you because he took your story and he weaved his story into your story. And not only are you brand new, you're also unique. Because that's what God's workmanship means when he created you in Christ Jesus. He took your pieces of paper. He took your broken down blanket. And he sewed Jesus into it. And now you're new. Somebody say, I'm new. The next time Satan tries to convince you the same, same, same person as you were before, you say he's, you tell him he's a what? And the next time your spouse says to you, you're the same old, same old, same old, you say to them, you're a what? And the next time somebody in your church says you're the same old, same old, same old, you tell them that they're a what? Because in Jesus, you're a what? Amen? And he says, guess what happens? The old has what? Gone. Guess what? That word gone is an heiress, which means it happened once and it lasts for how long? Ever. And guess who you get that from? You get that from Jesus. You get that from him. 
He says, the old's gone, the new's come, right? He says, all this is from God. It's not from your church. It's not from your pastor. It's not from somebody on YouTube. This comes from God. Somebody say amen. We're not making it up. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making something up here. I just want you to know the truth. This is God's plan, not Cord's, not Joe's, not Tomoka Christian churches, not the Catholic church, the Baptist church. This is God's plan. And he says, this is from God who reconciled, took two feuding parties, reconciled us to God through Jesus. You want to know why we praise Jesus? Because you can't be right before God without him. That's why we sing his name. That's why we praise his name. That's why we honor his name. Because he's the one that went to the tomb to make sure that we could be reconciled to God. Because listen, our issue isn't with the son of God. Our issue is with God, right? There is only one God and he is holy and righteous. He is just, there's no darkness in him. We are accountable for our failures and our sins before God. We need to be made right with him. Jesus is the reason we are. That's why we sing. That's why we celebrate. And listen to this. Church. Hi, Shelby. We were just about to wrap it up. (laughs) Right? He reconciled us through Christ. And listen. This is a frustration of mine. One of the frustrations that, that I experience as a pastor of my age and my generation Is that the pastors that are coming up under us in the next generation disagree with us theologically about what the purpose of the church is and the purpose of being a Christian. Let's be clear about what the Bible says that the purpose of the church is. He says, in Jesus, you're a new creation. Somebody say amen. Amen. And here's the thing. you got to be to be right with God. And you get that through Jesus. Somebody say amen. amen. And it costs Jesus his life. Which is why we remember the body and the blood. Amen. And he says he did it so that we could be right with him through Christ. And look what we got in return. He gave us the what? Ministry. In the Greek that means to serve. He gave us the service of what? Reconciliation. What is that? That God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not, listen to this, not, everybody say not, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us that message. You want to know what the highest purpose of your relationship with Jesus is? It's to be about the ministry of reconciliation. You didn't get saved to sit in a group and sing kumbaya. Now, if you want to sit in a group and sing kubaya and talk about the greatest thing about being a Christian or the fellowship dinners and all the warmth and lovey-dovey, that's fine. But the purpose of all of that is to get you into the field that is ripened to harvest and get the message of reconciliation out to people. And here's the message. God isn't holding your sins against you. But guess what the church does to almost everybody in the world? We hold their sins against them. Think about it. Who are we blasting currently in our world today from the church? We're blasting non-believers and we want them to be accountable for their what? Sins. Why? God isn't counting them. God wants them what? Reconciled. And what's our job? To get that message out. 
Our message isn't to declare your righteousness and their lack of righteousness and their ignorance for their choices. Of course they're ignorant choices because they're darkened by the, the, the God of this age, the devil. Our job is to get the ministry and the message of reconciliation to the world. And what is it? God isn't holding you accountable. He held Jesus accountable for you. And how many people do you think in the world would really like to hear that message? Most of them? I would guess so. I got better things to do and talk about the transgender agenda. What I want to know is, does the transgender person who's struggling with this know Jesus? I ain't got time to talk about people who are homophobic or people who are living an alternative lifestyle and declaring it to be the way of God. I ain't got time to argue with that. Because you and I already know the truth of that. Amen? Our job is to make sure that the message of reconciliation gets to that person who's in a gay marriage. Because that person needs to be reconciled to God. Unless, of course, you don't care about that person. And then by all means, attack their lifestyle. But if you care about the people that God cares about, you know what you're going to tell them? You're going to tell them about Jesus. Amen? That's the job of the church. He goes on to say this, right? I'll leave you with this. This is our, this is our moniker. We are therefore Christ what? You know what an ambassador does? An ambassador goes to a foreign country, represents the king, right? Represents the president. Speaks on their behalf, serves on their behalf. The reason why we're ambassadors is because we're living in a foreign country. Amen. This world is not our home. So we're here as emissaries, as ambassadors. And what are we doing? Oh, we're meeting in circles and we're having fellowship dinners. And it's amazing. Our job is to get people connected to each other. Because that's the highest calling. No. He says... We are Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Listen to the appeal. What's God wanting us to speak on his behalf? That word implore means to be, is to beg. It's the picture in the Greek of a beggar. He says, we are begging you on behalf of Jesus, be right with God. Amen. And here's why. The last verse says this, because God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be the sinful sacrifice for us so that in Jesus, we might become the what? We might become the righteousness of God. You know what the breastplate of righteousness is? It's that right there. And you know why you have it? Because Jesus died for you. And God simply took his test score, transferred it to your score. And now every one of you online, everybody in here, you stand before God with 100% every minute of every day. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this um, space, this time, privilege to study your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us in the truth. Lord, I, I pray as I always pray, if I'm misguided, if I'm misdirected, if I'm mispassioned because of some kind of prejudice in me, Lord, I pray that you would make that clear to me. I pray, Lord, that your truth will set people free. Free, free from the bondage we have in our minds to believe the lies of the enemy and free to live the way you tell us to live, which is to be about the work of the message of reconciliation in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. God bless you, church.